Hello and welcome to episode number 15 of English 264 Online. In this episode, we'll be looking at Pygmalion by George Bernard Shaw, and also at the World War I poet. Together, these writers continue to make the transition from the Victorian era into the modern world in the 20th century. Shaw's Pygmalion was first produced in England in 1914, just before World War I began. The title comes from a story from Greek mythology, and the play itself is loosely based, perhaps so loosely based as to be an ironic commentary on, this particular myth. Although there is no canon for Greek mythology in the same way that there is a canon of texts for the Bible, and therefore the myths vary quite a bit from version to version, here is one version of the Pygmalion story. Pygmalion was a gifted sculptor from Cyprus who had no interest in the local women as he found them immoral and frivolous. Instead, Pygmalion concentrated on his art until one day he ran across a large, flawless piece of ivory and decided to carve a beautiful woman from it. When he had finished the statue, Pygmalion found it so lovely and the image of his ideal woman that he clothed the figure and adorned her in jewels. He gave the statue a name, Galatea, which means sleeping love. He found himself obsessed with his ideal woman, so he went to the temple of Aphrodite to ask forgiveness for all the years he had shunned her and begged for a wife who would be as perfect as his statue. Aphrodite was curious, so she visited the studio of the sculptor while he was away and was charmed by his creation. Galatea was the image of herself. Being flattered, Aphrodite brought the statue to life. When returned Pygmalion to his home, he found Galatea alive and humbled himself at her feet. Pygmalion and Galatea were wed, and Pygmalion never forgot to thank Aphrodite for the gift she had given him. He and Galatea brought gifts to her temple throughout their life, and Aphrodite blessed them with happiness and love in return. I found this adaptation of the Pygmalion story online. If you have any experience with Greek mythology, you may have some skepticism about this version of the story because it has a happy ending. Almost none of the Greek myths have happy endings. Uh, normally what would happen would be Pygmalion would forget to thank Aphrodite and then it would be punished in some horrible way. Um, but in any case, here is, a, here is a story of Pygmalion and Galatea, and it's at least a starting point for discussion of the play. The point of connection between this myth and the play is that Henry Higgins is to some extent the creator of Eliza, Eliza Doolittle. He turns her from the Cockney Flower Girl into a duchess, into a, a princess, uh, at least for one night. And he affects this transformation through his skills rather than through magical or supernatural means. But Shaw is adamant, particularly in the sequel to the story, that this is not a love story, that Eliza Doolittle does not fall in love with Henry Higgins, that they are not a couple and do not end up together. And in fact, rather than ending marrying Henry Higgins, she marries Freddie Einsford Hill. Perhaps you have seen, either on film or on stage, the musical adaptation of Pygmalion, entitled My Fair Lady, uh, which takes Shaw's play as its starting point, in fact keeps a number of the lines and characters, but Lerner and Lowe, who wrote the music and the, the songs for it, changed the ending. The, their ending goes like this. She leaves to marry Freddie. Henry Higgins sings, I've grown accustomed to her face, in which he expresses how he's gotten used to having Eliza around. While he's singing the song, she slips in silently, and he yells, Liza, where the devil are my slippers? And the play, or the musical, ends on that note. And Lerner, who wrote the change, said, 
I have omitted the sequel because in it, Shaw explains how Eliza ends not with Higgins, but with Freddie, and Shaw and heaven forgive me, I am not certain he is right. Now, any discussion of the ending of this play probably ought to take into account the beginning and the intention. Why did Shaw write the play? What was his purpose? Did he set this up as a romantic comedy in which the two lovers overcome obstacles to get together? Or does he have another agenda in mind? In his preface to the play, he writes, The English have no respect for their language and will not teach their children to speak it. They cannot spell it because they have nothing to spell it with but an old foreign alphabet of which only the consonants, and not all of them, have any agreed speech value. Consequently, no man can teach himself what it should sound like from reading it, and it is impossible for an Englishman to open his mouth without making some other Englishman despise him. And he calls for a reformer to save the country, to save the language. Um, he says, well, in, the reformer we need most today is an energetic, phonetic enthusiast. And he makes, therefore, the hero of the play, Henry Higgins, a, a phoneticist. Now let's uh, examine this idea for a second. It seems somewhat ludicrous or facetious to say that this is the central problem facing the English. But remember from reading the biographical headnotes about Shaw, that he came from very poor background. He rose to prominence in London society. As a theater critic, a writer, and then playwright, he made himself into one of the most important voices uh, in English literary culture. So he was particularly aware of the power of words and also of the power of class and the pronunciation of words to either advance or hinder someone's career. Uh, to give you an example of the difficulties of English spelling and pronunciation, on pages 642 and 643 in our anthology, there are three poems by an author with the name Arthur Hugh and the last name spelled C-L-O-U-G-H. And on the first encounter of this author, you may be somewhat baffled about how to pronounce it, because there are a number of ways you can pronounce this combination of letters, the O-U-G-H sound, in English. So it is, his name might be Clo, rhyming with though, or clue, rhyming with through, or clow, rhyming with bow, or cluff, rhyming with rough, or, or cough, rhyming with cough, any of which has precedent according to spelling. And you would have no idea which was the correct one until you took a shot at it and pronounced it that way, at which point you would cause yourself to be despised by someone who actually knew how to pronounce it, um, or who had guessed correctly, or who had or someone who didn't know, but had guessed differently. As it turns out, the pronunciation for his name is Clough, but you would have no particular reason to think that way based on English phonetic spelling. As, as Shaw points out, um, we have a very messy system of alphabet and spelling and pronunciation, in part because England was conquered successfully by a number of invaders with different linguistic backgrounds. Um, so the first the, the Celts and then the Romans and then the, the Germanic barbarians, the Angles and Saxons and Jutes. And there was a Norse influence, and then the Normans came. Each of these different conquerors brought a different language, which were merged together over the centuries and formed the huge vocabulary, but also the very complicated system of spelling and pronunciation that we have in our English language. On top of that, you have a wide range of dialects and accents from different strata of society, different social classes, different parts of London from a population that often 
didn't move very much over a number of generations and so developed a particular accent from a very localized area. Um, and you have Henry Higgins in this play, who at, at the very first scene in which we are introduced to him, identifies a number of people in a crowd by their accent, and by how they speak. And particularly, um, this scene emphasizes the difference between the way he speaks and the way Eliza Doolittle speaks. And that's a class difference uh, as much as a regional or, or localized dialect issue. Shaw dramatizes this central theme, how one's voice identifies oneself and also holds, has the potential to hold one back, in the opening scene in the play, um, which introduces a range of voices, a range of dialects. There is some effort by Shaw to reproduce Eliza Doolittle's Cockney accent, her lower class central London accent, uh, phonetically, although he, he gives up and, and says that it's impossible to do it adequately given the alphabet and the characters that he has to work with. And so the reader is left to imagine it. I would imagine most of you would have difficulty imagining it. Uh, I was fortunate enough to find a books-on-tape version of this play uh, online, which has a sample excerpt which I wanted to reproduce from this scene. It's about a six- or seven-minute excerpt from it. Uh, but listen to the different range of voices and how the actors um, communicate the social strata, communicate the, the range of uh, education and class and wealth and um, and power in society based on how people speak. And also note towards the end of the scene, Henry Higgins comments on the effect of the, one's accent, the effect of, of how one speaks and how people who wish to advance in society give themselves away in every word they utter. The scene begins on page 1010 in our anthology. If possible, please follow along as you listen to it. Now, don't be troublesome, there's a good girl. I really haven't any change stock. Here's three halfpence, if that's any use to you. Thank you, sir. You be careful. Give him a flare for it. There's a bloke here behind taking down every blessed word you're saying. I ain't done nothing more by speaking to the gentleman. I've a right to sell flowers if I keep off the curb. I'm a respectable girl, so help me. I never spoke to him except to ask him to buy a flower off me. Girl, what do you take me for? It's all right, he's a gentleman. Look at his boots. Uh, she thought he was a copper's knock, sir. What's a copper's knock? Well, well, it's a copper's knock. <laughs> That's all right, sir. So what else would you call it? A sort of informer. I take my Bible oath. I never said a word. Oh, shut up, shut up. Do I look like a policeman? Then what do you take down my words for? How do I know whether you took me down right? You just show me what you wrote about me. What's that? That ain't proper writing. I can't read that. I can't. Cheer up, Captain. Buy a flower off a poor girl. Because <laughs> <laughs> I called him Captain. I met the mom. Oh, sir. Don't let him lay a charge against me for a word like that. Charge? I make no charge. Really, sir. If you are a detective, you need not begin protecting me against molestation by young women until I ask you. Anybody could see that the girl meant no harm. Of course they could. Yeah. What business is that of yours? Why do you want a face? He wants promotion, he does! <laughs> 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 
you my people come from Selsey. Never you mind, they did. <laughs> How do you come to be up so far east? You were born in Lisson Grove. Oh, what harm is there in my leaving Lisson Grove? It wasn't fit for a pig to live in, and I had to pay four and six a week. Oh, no! Live where you like, but stop that noise. Come, come, he can't touch you. You have a right to live where you please. Oh, Park Lane, for instance. <laughs> I'd like to go to the housing question with you, I would. I'm a good girl, I am. Right, do you know where I come from? Poxton. Oh, 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 it's not wrong. Oh, 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 I didn't, blimey. You know everything, you do. Ain't no call to med with me, eh? Of course he ain't. Don't you stand it from here. See here. What call of you to know about people who never offered to meddle with you? Where's your warrant? Yeah, Let him say what he likes. I don't want to have no truck with him. You take us for dirt under your feet, don't you? Perhaps you've taken liberties with a gentleman. Yeah. Tell him! Tell him where he come from if you want to go fortune telling. Yeah, for sure. Cheltenham, Harrow, Cambridge and India. Quite right. <laughs> May I ask you, sir, do you do this for your living at a music hall? I thought of that. Perhaps I shall. He's no gentleman. He ain't with a bit with a poor girl. What on earth is Freddy doing? I shall get pneumonia if I stay in this draft any longer. Pneumonia. Earl's Court. Will you please keep your impertinent remarks to yourself? Did I say that out loud? I didn't mean to. I beg your pardon. Your mother's Epsom, unmistakable. Oh, very curious. I was brought up in Large Lady Park, near Epsom. Oh, what a devil of a name. Oh, excuse me. You want a cab, do you? Don't dare speak to me. Oh, please, please, Clara. We should be so grateful to you, sir, if you found us a cab. Oh, thank you. There, I know he was a plain-clothes copper. That ain't a police whistle, that's a sporting whistle. You've no right to take away my character. My character is the same to me as any lady. I don't know whether you've noticed it, but the rain stopped about two minutes ago. Oh, no, it has. Why didn't you say so before? Let us lose another time listening to your silliness. I can tell you where you come from. You come from Anwell. Go back there. Anwell. Oh, thank you, teacher, Warhol. Yeah, so long. Right, like that. How would he like it himself? It's quite fine now, Clara. We can walk to a motor bus. Um, but the cab... Oh, how tiresome. Oh, poor girl. Hard enough for her to live without being worried and chivied. How do you do it, if I may ask? Hmm? Oh, simply phonetics, the science of speech. That's my profession. Also my hobby. Happy is the man who can make a living by his hobby. You can spot an Irishman or a Yorkshireman by his bro. I can place any man within six miles. I can place him within two miles in London. Sometimes within two streets. He ought to be ashamed of himself, unmanly coward. But is there a living in that? Oh, yes, quite a fat one. This is an age of upstarts. Men begin in Kentish Town with 80 pounds a year and end in Park Lane with 100,000. They want to drop Kentish Town. But they give themselves away every time they open their mouths. Now, I can teach... Let him mind his own business and leave a poor girl... Woman, cease this detestable boo-hooing instantly, or else seek the shelter of some other place of worship. I have a right to be here if I like, same as you. A woman who utters such depressing and disgusting sounds has no right to be anywhere, no right to live. 
Remember that you are a human being with a soul and the divine gift of articulate speech. That your native language is the language of Shakespeare and Milton and the Bible. And don't sit there crooning like a bilious pigeon. See this creature with the curbstone English, the English that will keep her in the gutter to the end of her days? Well, sir, in three months I could pass that girl off as a duchess at an ambassador's garden party. I could even get her a place as a lady's maid or shop assistant, which requires better English. What's that you say? Yes, you squashed cabbage leaf. You disgrace to the architecture of these columns. You incarnate insult to the English language. I could pass you off as the Queen of Sheba. This audio clip is a wonderful job of Eliza Doolittle before her transformation, and unfortunately I do not have a, a similar clip showing the after. Um, but that transformation is important, uh, like Galatea, who is turned from a block of stone into a, a living, living, breathing woman. Eliza Doolittle is transformed from this, uh, the refuse of the city, uh, uh, in effect a beggar, selling her flowers for whoever will bother to pay her to get her to go away and leave them alone, into a lady, in the sense that she is uh, recognized as one, uh, she is treated as one, and uh, identified as being a princess, a, hung a Hungarian princess at the ball. Throughout this transformative process, however, Henry Higgins, the Pygmalion of the story, never seems to have a clue about what's going to happen afterwards. Um, his mother asks him about this rather directly on page 1041, when she says, Don't you realize that when Eliza walked into Wimpole Street, something else walked in with her? Uh, that other thing is a, is a problem, particularly the problem of what to do with her afterwards. Henry points out to his mother, she can go her own way with all the advantages I have given her. Her mother responds, The advantages of that poor woman who was here just now, the manners and habits that disqualify a fine lady from earning her own living, without giving her a fine lady's income? Is that what you mean? And, and this is, in effect, the, the issue. The point of being a lady is not just to pass contests and, and to win bets. The point of being a lady is to be able to marry a gentleman. Uh, it's to have adequate social graces and adequate uh, accomplishments in order to be marriageable, uh, marriageable in the proper, in the proper social sphere. Um, and Eliza Doolittle has the appearance of a lady, the, the dress, the, the walk, the manner, the, the language, the accent, but she has not any of the solidity behind it um, in terms of who her parents are, in terms of how much money she earns, or not earns, how much money she has, or, um, how much money she stands to inherit more properly. On the night after she wins the bet, Eliza puts the problem quite succinctly on page 1048. What am I fit for? What have you left me fit for? Where am I to go? What am I to do? What's to become of me? She makes the point when she was on Tottenham Court Road, when she was in, uh, in the flower market, she says, I sold flowers. I didn't sell myself. Now you've made a lady of me. I'm not fit to sell anything else. I wish you'd left me where you found me. Note that Shaw does not leave this commentary on, on social class and on the, uh, the education of ladies at this point. This is a 20th century play, and Eliza Doolittle recognizes, eventually, her independence, recognizes her own power, and becomes her own person, her own woman. In fact, even takes on Freddie Einsford Hill, 
as to some extent her project so that she will be able to transform him from the fairly useless individual who is all surface and no, con no, um, no substance except for his adoration of her into something worthwhile and useful. For Shaw, this was the point of literature. This was the point of plays, not to be beautiful, not to be like Wilde's aesthetic principles, uh, not art for art's sake by any means, but the purpose of art was to teach a lesson, was to be didactic, overtly so, was to be uh, educational, and to cause the audience to go away with new ideas that they had not intended, had, had not had with them when they came, uh, to transform the world through his plays, through his stories. And I think it is this passion for social reform which makes Shaw's play not the romantic comedy it would seem to be from watching My Fair Lady, even though it, telling the story that way it's a wonderful story, but there's much more here. Uh, there's a wonderful quotation from Shaw in the preface where he says, Why would art, if it was just for art's sake, interest me at all? He had a program for transforming the world through his art, uh, which he hoped to achieve and this passion also explains why, in the sequel to the play, or why he felt obliged to write a sequel to the play, in opposition to the audience's expectations for Eliza and Henry to be together. And he begins the sequel by saying, The rest of the story need not be shown in action, and indeed would hardly need telling, if our imaginations were not so enfeebled by their lazy dependence on the ready-mades and reach-me-downs of the rag-shop in which romance keeps its stock of happy endings to misfit all stories. For Shaw, having Eliza and Higgins together is not the happy ending. Having Eliza stand on her own two feet and be successful after struggle, after working hard to achieve something, after making something of Freddie, becoming Henry Higgins' equal, that's a happy ending. In many ways, Shaw was ahead of his time, uh, as suggested by the fact that audiences still are not all that keen to accept the story the way he wishes to tell it. I had mentioned earlier that Shaw had a passion for reforming the world. You find this dissatisfaction with the way things had been expressed, perhaps most succinctly, by Clara Einsford Hill, Freddie's sister, who at Mrs. Higgins' at home expresses her delight with the new small talk as opposed to the old, and says, such nonsense, all this early Victorian prudery and goes on, is prompted by Henry Higgins to call it such bloody nonsense, which would have been shocking on, on the stage in, in 1914 in England. Um, so, so shocking, in fact, that Pygmalion did not have its debut on the British stage, but in fact was staged first in Austria, in Vienna, in 1913, solely because Eliza's line, not bloody likely, would have been intolerable on the British stage. Um, but again, this younger generation, the dissatisfaction with the Victorian ways and values, their search for something new, um, was part of a, a new movement that was well underway by 1913, 1914. You see it, for example, in Marcel Duchamp's paintings. You see it in uh, Ezra Pound's poem, uh, In a Station of the Metro, uh, an example of the imagist poetry. The poem itself consists of the following. The apparition of these faces in the crowd petals on a wet black bough. Uh, so a radical shift from what poetry had been to free verse and to very short, concise compression of images. You find it also expressed much more scandalously in Wyndham Lewis's 
Blast, the manifesto, the Vorticist manifesto that uh, is in our section on World War I. Now, it certainly may be the case that the Vorticist manifesto didn't seem to make a lot of sense to you. You weren't sure what it meant or how to understand it. That's fine. It's not really presented in any sort of rational argument. It's not presented in any sort of um, linear or, or reasonable way. It's a rant, uh, and the point of it is to express dissatisfaction with the way things had been and to shock the public by its expression. And so the use of um, typography, uh, the, the fonts and the arrangement on the page, the um, use of very inside jokes among the vorticists, were not intending to communicate. They were intending to shock and outrage. This document was published very shortly before World War I began in the summer of 1914. In brief, the history of World War I is as follows. In June of 1914, a Serbian terrorist assassinated Archduke Frederick, uh, Ferdinand, who was heir to the throne of Austria-Hungary, and Austria-Hungary declared war on Serbia in July, uh, and then because of a series of treaties and agreements amongst nations, uh, the dominoes began falling, so that Russia came in on the war on the side of Serbia, and then Germany came in on the war on the side of Austria-Hungary, uh, and then France and England came in on the side of uh, of Serbia and Russia. Um, in August of 1914, Germany declared war on Russia and France and invaded Belgium, which began the, uh, the offensive in the war. Um, England, in part because of German atrocities in Belgium, declared war on the Axis powers of uh, Germany and Austria-Hungary. And by that point, um, the war was well underway. Much of the early years of the war consisted on the Western Front, of a line of trenches from Switzerland to the English Channel. And for years, there was very little progression, very little um, advance in the war, but a huge cost of life. Uh, the casualties in World War I were far more than in World War II. And one reason was that the new technology of war, machine guns, poison gas, airplanes, uh, eventually tanks, uh, much more powerful artillery, had been introduced into combat whereas generals were still using the strategies from previous wars with large advances of massed groups of troops. Um, to give you an example of the, the cost of the war, and there was one battle, the Battle of the Somme, which attempted to break the stalemate in the trenches and to have an Allied advance against the Germans. From July 1916 to November of 1916, there was um, fairly constant battles back and forth in the trenches uh, on July 1st, 1916, so some 90 years ago, the English alone lost 20,000 soldiers killed in one single day of battle. Um, so compare that to 2,500 soldiers killed in the first three years of the war in Iraq, and, and you get some sense of the, the proportion. Uh, eventually, by the, time the war, this, by the time this battle was over um, in November, the British had lost 420,000 soldiers, the French had lost 200,000, the Germans had lost half a million men, and the, the battle lines had been changed about five miles over the, throughout that great human cost. In 1916, the Irish Rebellion occurred in, on Easter to attempt to gain Irish independence, and that tended to bring some of the English troops away from the front lines. In 1917, the United States entered the war, um, but we're only sending small numbers of troops at first. In 1918, in March, Russia signed a peace treaty with Germany because of their revolution, and eventually, in 1918, the Allies staged their final attack with uh, masses of American troops, 
and the war ended in November of 1918, um, on November 11th, on Armistice Day. All told, Russia had lost two million men, Germany had lost two million men, England, with a much smaller population than either, had lost a million men. One result of the horrors of this war was to accelerate a dissatisfaction with the values and ideas of the previous generation and to lead to a rejection of all, everything Victorian, from politics to day-to-day -to -day life to poetry. The soldiers at the front were some of the first to feel this need for change, to, uh, to feel very viscerally this rejection of the past, of the previous generation. And eventually, uh, as the casualty lists mounted at home, that feeling spread throughout uh, England as well. To give you a comparison of a poem about the war, uh, a poem about the death of a soldier, from the perspective which might be characterized as pre-war and, po and, and post-war experience, look on page 1098 at Rupert Brooke's The Soldier. Brooke writes, If I should die, think only this of me, that there's some corner of a foreign field that is forever England. There shall be in that rich earth a richer dust concealed, a dust whom England bore, shaped, made aware, gave once her flowers to love, her ways to roam, a body of England's, breathing English air, washed by the rivers, blessed by sons of home. And think, this heart, all evil shed away, a pulse in the eternal mind, no less gives somewhere back the thoughts by England given, her sights and sounds, dreams happy as her day, and laughter learnt of friends, and gentleness in hearts at peace under an English heaven. This poem characterizes the loss of the soldier's life as um, a sacrifice for his country, as a sacrifice for the values of, of English country living and, and domestic life, and as in some ways improving the world by making his grave a spot of England. Note that Rupert Brooke did not serve at the front in World War I. He was on his way to the war uh, when he died on board the troop ship, so he never actually saw combat. Contrast this approach with Wilford Owen's poem, Anthem for Doomed Youth, uh, and it, like Brooke's, Brooke's poem, are sonnets, but the, the effect is entirely different. Owen writes, What passing bell for those who die as cattle? Only the monstrous anger of the guns, only the stuttering rifle's rapid rattle can patter out their hasty orisons. No mockeries now for them, no prayers nor bells, nor any voice of mourning save the choirs, the shrill, demented choirs of wailing shells and bugles calling for them from sad shires. What candles may be held to speed them all, not in the hands of boys, but in their eyes, shall shine the holy glimmers of goodbyes. The pallor of girls' brows shall be their pall, their flowers the tenderness of patient minds, and each slow dusk a drawing down of blinds. And this poem foregrounds the horrors of war, the horrors of the, the sounds and chaos, and the mourning of the, the relatives and friends at home, uh, the, the general sense of waste and, and uselessness of all of this endeavor. One reason to account for the difference between Brooks and Owen's approach to this topic is that while Brooke had not served on the front, Owen had. He was in the trenches for some years before he was wounded, and he wrote most of his poetry about the war uh, recovering in a veterans' hospital back in England. At that same hospital, he met Siegfried Sassoon, another poet of the front lines, who, who communicated his outrage with the war and with the way it was being run at home uh, in a poem in his own sonnet, um, The Glory of Women, which to some extent 
puts the blame on this human loss and suffering on the women who buy into the ideals and values of the noble soldier, the, the knight in shining armor who goes to the front in this uh, glorious endeavor. Sassoon writes on page 1099, You love us when we're heroes, home on leave, or wounded in a mentionable place. You worship decorations. You believe that chivalry redeems the war's disgrace. You make us shells. You listen with delight by tales of dirt and danger fondly thrilled. You crown our distant ardors while we fight and mourn our laureled memories when we're killed. You can't believe that British troops retire when hell's last horror breaks them and they run, trampling the terrible corpses blind with blood. O German mother dreaming by the fire, while you are knitting socks to send your son, his face is trodden deeper in the mud. Note the turn at the end of this poem, at the end of the sonnet, towards not the British woman, not the British mother at home, but the German mother. Um, the Germans tended to be demonized in the propaganda posters and, and speeches uh, sent out by the English government. And this tends to undermine the demonization of the Germans so that they have mothers too, knitting socks. And the, the English troops who are running away in horror and panic from what they have done stepping on the face of the German corpse and trotting it deeper in the mud, and you get every possible attempt to remove any sense of glory from the war and from the actions of the soldiers. You might contrast these poems by Sassoon and by Owen with The Charge of the Light Brigade, another poem of war that we saw by Alfred Lord Tennyson. Again, a poem written from the back lines, from the home front, as opposed to from the front lines of the war itself. In many ways, the effect of World War I on English society and culture was as great as the French Revolution had been, in that afterwards everything was changed. No one could make the same assumptions. No one could live life as if it had not happened. Those who were involved in it were certainly obviously affected by it, but even the ones at home. And this event outside of England's borders helped to accelerate a great sense of change, of movement into the modern world, into a 20th century uh, and a rejection of the 19th century. In the last podcast, we'll examine how this need for change works its way into both prose and, and poetry, and see examples of a radical redirection for English literature. Until then, thank you and goodbye.